Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind the new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 41 of the podcast, the topic is scaling software movements. Our guest is Hilary Kopla McAdams, venture partner at NEA. Augmented Podcast is presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform, where Hillary, as of this year, serves as a board of director member and is also associated with MFG Works, the industrial upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. In this conversation, we talk about what Hillary has learned from 35 years in the software industry reflecting on her path, which includes taking Oracle from 100 million to 11 billion in revenue via building a user movement of small business owners and their accountants at Intuit, integrating all those lessons with the simplicity that Salesforce brought to the customer relationship, channeling the move towards trusted computing on the cloud, to Tulip, which enables the co-design of products and services in frontline operations, starting with the manufacturing shop floor. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators, hosted by Futurist Trun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG Works, the industrial upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Augmented the Industry 4.0 podcast. Hilary, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for inviting me here today. Well, I think you deserve an invite, don't you think? Uh, you, you've done a lot for, for industry over the last few years. It's, uh, it's been an exciting career. One of many people helping build this industry up, but thank you. <laughs> well, you and I talked a little bit, and I know that you're, uh, you're, you grew up in Winchester, Mass., which uh, is near where I am right now, and your dad also worked in tech on, on Route 128. Um, is that where you got the interest in technology? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, yes, he worked on Amer- what was America's Technology Highway, I think they call it. Um, uh, and I got exposed to technology, and in some ways it was less intimidating. I didn't come out to California until college, Um, And I didn't really know what Silicon Valley was, but when I figured it out, it felt familiar and it felt comfortable and it was really appealing because it was about disrupting the world. And, you know, my dad had this adage that he used with me and my three siblings, which was, there's always a better way, right? This is like a true engineer's perspective on the world. There's always a better bridge, you know, the Zabin Bridge could be more beautiful in Boston. And uh, coming out to Silicon Valley, what I met was a lot of people who were focused on the next big idea and that better way. And so that that was very familiar. And I guess I'm really thankful in some ways that my upbringing exposed me to that. Now, on the flip side, my mom was a therapist so she had a real humanizing approach, and I think it was really the synthesis of the two of them that helped me. Well, this makes a lot of sense to me now because you you went to Mills College, you got a Bachelor of Arts, and yes. then you made your way to Chicago, still in the public policy sphere. So I guess that maybe the marriage of engineering and therapy is public policy. Yeah, I, especially today, it's a very big data science program. Yes, I went to school for public policy. I thought it was more interesting than an MBA. That's what one thinks at 21. (laughs) At 23, I came out of school completely unprepared for the world, but I had a good grounding. Um, And what Chicago actually had in common with Silicon Valley was a very Socratic approach to the world. You know, it's a it's a place. It's not an easy school by design. Uh, it's a place where you're asked to think hard and think reflectively. And I think that was a wonderful setup for Silicon Valley, especially for joining Oracle Corporation, which was my first job. <laughs> so, so what is the story there? You you just out of the blue joined Oracle from Chicago, studying public policy. I don't quite get that. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Well, all roads lead back to MIT, I'll tell you. I had a really good friend who had just graduated from Sloan, and she had been hired, handpicked by Oracle (laughs) to join the company. And Larry had this rule that we would recruit from 10 universities across the country, and that was sort of a filtering system around talent. And MIT and Caltech were the top two of those schools. But thankfully, Larry had spent a quarter at the University of Chicago studying physics. So we're on the list. And my friend said to me, uh, when I was bemoaning the fact that I had student loans that were due relatively soon, and I did not want to call the parents in Massachusetts and ask for help. She said, you have to apply for a job at this company. I know you're waiting for your interviews at the Federal Reserve, but you should take any job at this company. It's a rocket. So I had a 20-minute interview at Oracle. They basically asked me, what's your GPA? Are you smart? Do you know what you want to do? And at 23, I didn't. And they said, okay, you'll have an offer letter tomorrow. And I was hired in. Well, we share that background at Oracle, but I would say your, your, your background there and your pedigree is slightly more distinguished. You you started in product and then you made your way up the sales ladder and you had quite a bit of success there. Would you say that's where you sharpened your teeth for what we're about to talk talk yeah. about, which is sort of, you know, how you really started to scale these organizations, uh, sales-based organizations in, in IT? Well, yes. And I think, you know, because we have that common background, we know in those days, the database standard was the was a battleground. IBM was the incumbent and had a very loyal following. And then there were these upstarts like Ingress and Informix and Sybase. And we were all trying to win our piece of the market in a disruptive way. And so uh, that's where I really got exposed to disruptive go-to-market techniques. Um, And eventually was able to play a leadership role in helping the company approach the market market differently. And that really built the foundation for what I've done for the rest of my career the last 35 years. Well, and we're going to cover some of those 35 years, especially some of the very interesting uh, tactics and strategies that you have been able to implement in, in so many of these companies. And, and now, I guess, as an investor sitting on the board of some of these companies, you can also in a different way, influence. Right before we sort of go into those companies, I wanted to just re- have you reflect on this. So you came from an outsider background into IT, and then now you have worked for so long in companies that are somewhat similar. Would you say that it's been es- essentially a little bit of an advantage for you to to have this outsider background so that you weren't actually competing with the engineers for some sort of specific skill that they knew? Or or would you say that that is, um, yeah, I'm just trying, I'm just kind of curious because it, so many people these days come into companies where they sort of at least think that, you know, they're either a perfect fit for the company or they, th- they say, I have no idea why I ended up at this company. And then that produces, I guess, two different approaches for how you're then going to take on board, you know, what this company is all about. How has your, your journey been in, in terms of, I guess, acquiring the technical literacy to, to become an efficient leader? Mm-hmm. And then what do you, what do you think? Uh, you know, it's sort of a strange question at the beginning of an interview, but so many people are c- considering career changes these days. So I thought it was an interesting place to start. I think it's a great question. Maybe I should sit on the couch. (laughs) Should I answer this question? It's a wonderful question. I mean, I will tell you the first 10 years of my career, I had terrible imposter syndrome because there was so much focus on where did you go to school and what degree do you have? And people with double E degrees and really computer science was still an emerging degree were held, uh, uh, you know, high for all of us to admire and there was a lot of reinforcement in the culture that you don't rate um, if you don't have a particular degree degree type or even went to a particular university and I would like to believe the world has changed and that we no longer prescribe to young people that success is going to Stanford and studying computer science or going to Cal or going to MIT 
um, and that there are a lot of ways to skin the cat. I think what I proved to myself after really slinking around for 10 years with imposter syndrome, hoping nobody would notice my softer degrees, was uh, that I brought a different perspective to the same problem. And I think that's the gift that you were trying to get me to uncover. Um, when I moved to sales from product, uh, I realized that I was not trained in the convention and custom of enterprise field sales. And in some ways that was, uh, it gave me the opportunity and perspective and curiosity to think about reinvention. Like what could this look like if there was no steak dinner <laughs> to stereotype? <laughs> well, well, that brings us just up to 2021, right? Because there's less steak dinners. Yeah. So so now let's find some sort of happy medium in between because a lot of things have happened in those uh, 30 years where you started to learn that quickly. And then now where there perhaps are going to be very few steak dinners. So what would you say uh, to companies that are trying to scale today? So having learned what you have learned over these 30 years, and we'll go into some of the examples that you think are the most pertinent. but But then things change all the time. And now suddenly there are no steak dinners again, right? I mean, literally right. no steak dinners. Right. They're, they're really just, I mean, is literally no steak dinners. <laughs> right. Well, you know, what are the lessons for scaling and, you know, running and building trailblazing SaaS models? Because that is kind of what you ended up doing, although with Oracle in the beginning, there were many other things, you know, within sales that I'm sure you, you, you learned. What is it that people should start to take on board if you want to have a pivotal role in a company that's either growing fast or where you, in your case, you'll be brought into companies that hope to grow fast or, or that are at the cusp? Yeah, I, it's a great question. You know, at the end of the day, we make offerings or we create technology that we want to bring to market to help people solve problems. And from my vantage point, and this is still kind of my formula, what needs to happen is there needs to be knowledge transfer of how does this solution solve my problem. And there's often a lot of this kind of communication going on. I have a problem, I describe it in the words, the vernacular of my culture, my industry. Here's a vendor, and I use that label very purposely, kind of a generic vendor. They say they solve my problem, we'll see. Um, and this is of great frustration to product leaders who have spent their entire career thinking up these fabulous breakthrough solutions that they can't get the translation into the market. In the old days, it was person to person, and we tried to disrupt that. Today, we put our products out there to be tried by different personas, right? By the interested buyer, it could be an IT person, it could be a business analyst, it could be, in the case of my Salesforce career, an individual seller who wants to do better. And they can actually try the product on their own and they can actually do some form of knowledge transfer in what I call a self-directed manner. And these are the people who read the manuals, by the way, Trond, you know, and they understand <laughs> reading the manuals, how to do things. And then there, and that has become a industry convention for trying things, trying new technologies and applying them. But there is a certain point in time where even the best of the self-directed buyer can't do it on their own. They have to talk to somebody in product at the vendor. They have to talk to somebody who can give them a deeper understanding of the capabilities. And that, to me, that's the new design. What does that set of conversations and interactions look like? What's with a human? What's digital? Uh, what's in product in terms of discovery? And that's really the art that has been created in the last decade, I would argue, probably starting 20 years ago with the advent of the cloud architectures. But even before the cloud, I mean, when you started at Oracle, it was a $100 million business. And when yep. you left, uh, famously, I guess, it, it was an $11 billion business, and, and now it's much bigger. 
but that was already very big. And that was even before sort of cloud. And you and I talked a little bit about this, but uh, you know, Oracle was pretty skeptical to all things startup, all things cloud and all things new, but grew very fast nonetheless. What were some of the lessons that you sort of learned in those very early days that are actually still relevant today? Even, even though I, I realized what you just said, you know, this kind of product-led growth is a very recent thing. Yeah. Um, well, lesson number one is uh, don't just join a category, redefine a category. So if you're bringing a product to market, if you're designing a product, don't define it as database, define it as relational and make that have real meaning. The fastest database, as you know, from the Oracle days. Uh, and then step two, define an ecosystem around that solution which is mm -hmm. what early, what really Oracle did in the early days very well was signed up a lot of independent software vendors to build a user interface on top of their database and then Trojan horse that database into GIS systems and pharmaceutical limb systems and time and attendance systems and the list goes on and on and most famously into financial systems and ERP systems with starting with SAP, but then eventually Oracle's own applications. And that thinking broadly, not just about a technology solution, but then how does one create an ecosystem of derivative solutions that get out to market? That's how you scale a company, actually. That's how you think bigger and then intentionally putting the resources in place to take those offerings to market and to support the the different segments of the market and expand your position in the market are the other pieces. Now, it sounds really easy. Lots of people fail at doing this because they don't have the intentionality and the sequencing. And that kind of, you know, one of the golden secrets is pick one thing and do it really well before you try to do the next thing. And well, I, I the, think there were a couple of things that you, you and I talked about where uh, I think we'll get to it in a second. But, you, you, for example, you, you, you know, uh, when it comes to global growth, you have a very clear and very specific directive to to founders and and C teams that that want to do that. Uh, what's your plan there? I mean, essentially, you have to grow by expanding the market. So, right. geography. But but right. if you're going to do it, how how are you going to do that? Well, most <laughs> most people, if if their product can be discovered anywhere in the world, which is true of product led growth models start thinking they should expand wildly everywhere where they have buyers. And that's actually a mistake. That's the peanut buttering effect. And ultimately, you'll end up with a scarce number of resources around the globe, and you'll make everyone unhappy, including your buyers. So uh, the, the intentional approach I take is I look at the top markets, and I look at what are the top industries in those markets? What's the GDP growth rate of that economy? and the industry that I'm trying to enter. Are they a build or buy market? Do we have a build or buy offering? And then what, what are the points of friction in that market? And points of friction 20 years ago were public policy around the cloud where it was not accepted and data sovereignty rules were difficult. Uh, it could be labor laws. It could be specific to an industry, a regulated industry that we're trying to enter, but really going in eyes wide open and scanning the market before you put boots on the ground. And then when you put boots on the ground, designing the first uh, manufacturing line, if you will, <laughs> you know, like a complete set of people, not a sole person working out of their home office that's also their bedroom but a complete set of people that can go conquer london and that you know traditionally the uk is a first uh, global footprint location for a lot of tech companies and then picking carefully from there so it's often you know i'll count canada as part of north america most of us build adjacent businesses there then we go to the uk australia and increasingly so to japan um, early and then thinking about continental Europe, not so much as a region, as a country, as a as a set of industries, and the same in Asia. You know, the ASEAN you know, it's countries so are very you, different. 
it's so interesting you bring this up, and I'm glad we had we covered that before we're going to move to that Salesforce discussion because a, a lot of these sort of Silicon Valley innovation debates they strand on this. Oh, you know, the hero at this software company. And, you know, of course, we can talk about Mark Benioff, who I'm sure you know well. But of course, in your perspective, it's a lot more complicated than that, right? It's, it's not just one person, one idea, one brilliant uh, kind of move. It is all of these smaller check, uh, chess moves that it seems that, that, that are happening and, and are being coordinated and endorsed, of course, of the leadership. So, but if we do uh, move a little bit to Salesforce, so you, you, did you follow that train uh, when it started or did you jump on that train after a little, little while? Because what Mark Benioff did, jumping off of the Oracle ship, was also interesting, right? He saw some weakness, I guess, or an opportunity in the market. Um, what, yeah. what what would you say was the initial kind of um yeah what was the spark that then turned uh, that turned that on well uh mark saw the oracle applications being built as did evan goldberg the founder of netsuite and he also saw amazon start selling books online and Mark asked himself, why can't enterprise software be as simple as buying a book on Amazon? Very simple So it was question. the simplicity of it. Simplicity, yeah, versus sausage making, <laughs> complex implementations that last years. And I think it was a brilliant question because at the time, the, you know, the browser technology had matured. So this idea that one could authenticate who they were and then access this robust enterprise-grade piece of software and that's it like no barrier of entry was pretty remarkable i did not mark and evan left oracle at the same time to go build these companies one net suite one salesforce larry endorsed them both gave them capital i left a few years later to go to intuit to learn a lot more about uh the smb in the in the country primarily uh customer back strategies and then Mark called me and said, hey, I really want you to come up here and help me scale this business. Well, at that point, he was a $500 million company. So he was a successful company. He had just gone public. But they were primarily an SMB mid-market company selling one cloud. And he saw the potential to go much bigger. And that's when I joined Salesforce and what was fascinating was when I announced my decision, so many people poo-pooed it and said, oh, no, 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 that'll never work. And I was just, I remember the first week coming home and saying to my husband, who's in the industry, people are so wrong. This is beautiful. This will work. <laughs> well, tell me about this, Hillary, because you've made these decisions a couple of times in your career and so many, like the, the typical Silicon Valley mentality here, I guess, would be the engineer mentality is let's join a great startup really early. And you, when you're joining at 500 million, is that still small for you? Or what was going through your head? It's just, are you, is it that you just realize that you can add that much value, that it, you can still do exponential growth at that size company? Uh, That's very yeah. audacious. I That's was, audacious. <laughs> call it the random walk of my career, Trond. Um, <laughs> no, I was blown away by the potential. The, it, 500 million seemed very small to me. Now, my next, you know, Oracle had been 100. Intuit was a $3 billion company when I joined. Uh, Salesforce, 500 million seemed small. My next company was 60 million. Now I work with even smaller companies. But I saw the opportunity to get this to multiples of a billion. And the, the basic reason why was Salesforce made it so easy for people to leverage their solutions, right? Yeah. It was very human. It's a very human experience to use Salesforce for the first time versus the old way, which one would never want to go back to. No. And I think consumer tech companies have inspired us to do even better in the enterprise, frankly. They've, they've raised the bar on what friction will we accept. Hmm. So if you think about this SaaS business model, that's, and, and you said you, you work with so many companies that are, that are now trying to scale and trying to get to you know, 
maybe not all to to Salesforce size, but they're certainly trying to become unicorns, right? That's what startups try to yeah. do. Um, what are, what are the steps in getting ready to scale? Uh, understanding who your buyer is. Step one. So understand who's going to buy the solution hmm. and then scaling up your access to that person, the, those personas, I should say, because it's plural. And then uh, what I would describe is then staging a movement, creating and stimulating a movement. And you hear people talk about this today as community, which it is community, creating communities, birds of a feather of a certain persona, but Really, your job in scaling the company is to be the catalyst for that movement to take off and bringing people holistically into not just a, a solution, but maybe there's a university offering, there's a marketplace, there are add-ons, there are integrations that create this really robust opportunity for the buyer. And you notice in everything I say, I start buyer back. I think that's one of the lessons I've learned over the last three decades that you you want to embrace the buyer, the best profile of the buyer, I should say, not the stereotype profile of some buyers. You want to embrace that person and think through in their head, what would it take for them to not just use this solution, but help ignite the movement, be a flag carrier for the movement, be a hero for the movement and that I want really to ask goes, you more about when you say when you use the word movement yeah that is a social science term mm -hmm. I guess and it's a popular term like a movement right it has a meaning yeah. social movement do you really mean that you mean a movement you mean people yeah. who advocate on behalf of a cause that they strongly believe in yes. together I felt that way about the cloud I felt people misunderstood in the early days. The people saw the cloud as risky because it wasn't my house where the software was installed. And I, I actually, by design, started recruiting people who would talk about the cloud as a safe location for your data and would help who were credible spokespeople for the movement who did not have Salesforce on their business card. So they, they had no vested interest in this pronouncement of the movement. But yes, I mean it as a movement. I think the market moves in waves. And if you can create the next movement, like Amazon has, AWS is a fabulous example of a movement, um, then you're golden. And you learn a lot as you do that. By the way, it's not you know, bi-directional, these movements. <laughs> Yes, but but by the same token, when you use that big of a word, that means there aren't that many movements at any given moment. I mean, you're not talking. I mean, you're. This is not a marketing term, movement, meaning you know every little startup company can create a movement. I mean, I'm assuming you're talking about massive sort of shifts in the market, and there can't be too many of them. So. Whether you call it a movement or a wave, it's not like there's always a wave and you got to just catch one and create a movement. You, I mean, cloud was a very big deal, it and it encompassed the entire industry essentially. Yes, but it wasn't valuable unless it was expressed in the form of an offering, right? So no one would right. have cared about an architecture, an efficient architecture, an easy to use architecture unless it brought value, which was, we're going to make you more productive in your selling or your servicing or eventually in your front office uh, yeah. operations, which is where the company is. But if you look at Salesforce as one of the early cloud companies, and in those days we called it software as a service, we didn't even use the cloud descriptor, um, if they have created a movement because so many people have come in with their version of a set of tools that sit outside, hosted, easy to access, um, you know, billions of dollars of opportunity, market opportunity have been created on that cloud movement. Hmm. You, you told me earlier that Salesforce was like a synthesis of everything you had learned about the IT industry thus far. So you had learned some disruption of the sales channels, 
with Oracle and bundling up an ecosystem thinking and a bunch of things we just talked about, and but also a lot about features and selling on features, but the, and then packaging it and selling it. You know, a lot of lessons from Oracle and then from Intuit. You're, you you've also learned a, a bunch. We we haven't talked so much on it here, but then Salesforce for you was just a confluence of all those things. Yeah, wonderful, like a great orchestra, a great piece of music coming together. Yeah, Oracle is about redefining the database market and disrupting that market. Intuit took a really interesting approach, I think, because the founder came from Procter & Gamble. That's how he was trained in CPG. He brought a very customer-back, traditional product management approach to building software for small businesses. And to me, the synthesis of those two experiences is what we were able to deliver at Salesforce, where it was a very customer-centric approach to even finding the product, becoming aware of the product, your first use experience, how we shepherd you through more strategic use of the platform, Um, plus this idea that we were redefining two categories, really cloud as a modality, and then CRM, as a use case, customer relationship management is a use case. Right. Intuit, of course, was somewhat of a smaller pie, but a super important pie because uh, you shared this, right? I mean, small business, of course, is a massive market in and of itself. But then the accountants who are supporting that market became the spokespeople and they were pretty vocal. In fact, I have an accountant who recommended you know, uh, systems for me. And, and that's a very powerful way to to enlist someone to work on your behalf. Yeah, if you, one of the things I always think about when I look at a company is who are the influencers in their ecosystem? Who enable them? We traditionally in enterprise tech think of the GSIs, right? The Price Waterhouses, the Accentures, the Deloittes. But in every ecosystem, there is a set of enablers. In small business, it's often the accountants who make sure that you know you can pay your taxes on time. That's the ultimate job that needs to be done. Hmm. Um, and in every category, there is somebody who's influencing and enabling the business. Hmm. And that's an important stakeholder to sometimes design a product around or a, a user experience around, but it's certainly somebody to partner with. Hmm. And that was a big lesson coming out of Intuit. Fast forward to today and this year, you took on uh, an important responsibility by joining the board of a company that we uh, uh, both uh, now have, have learned a little bit about, Tulip. Where does Tulip fit into this picture? So we've been talking about you know, doing smart things to grow. We've been talking about markets that are shifting in, in very specific ways. Where does Tulip fit, fit in for you? What What kind of a product? What kind of a, an experience is it that Tulip uh, represents for you? Well, Tulip, when I was exposed to Tulip, I was really um, blown away by its similarities, similarities to Salesforce in many ways, except it was looking at a different constituent. So for members of the audience that don't know, Tulip is looking to enable the frontline industrial operations people, the shop floor people, and really change manufacturing and make it agile, Make uh, give people an extensible platform, give people a no-code platform so they can design human processes and basically make jobs more enjoyable like we've done in every other sector. Um, and so when I looked at what Natan and Ronnie had built with this open platform, so open is a key characteristic of modern companies, I believe, And that has not been the case in the manufacturing space. It's more recently the case, but it's not in the history of manufacturing to have open systems, to have a cloud-based architecture. So the burden of access is very low. And then to have this notion of extensibility where I can design whatever work process I want and I can integrate my tools, you know, my physical tools that need to calibrate or other software systems and I can have this bi-directional flow of data and I can instrument everything that's going on on the shop floor the way it should be. Not the way somebody designed something out of the box, but the way it should be. To me, that was an incredibly powerful value prop. And 
I, you know, I don't know what your perspective is, Tron, but it feels like manufacturing is, has been the stepchild to some of the modern innovation that we've seen in other sectors of the market. We've had so many dollars pouring into front office innovation and sales and service and marketing. Um, we've had a lot of money move into engineering, you know, better PMO systems, better ticketing systems, et cetera. Uh, better deployment approaches. IT gets a ton of resourcing, as does human capital management. But manufacturers have been sort of left behind, as have supply chains. And I feel like in the last few years, we've all woken up to the opportunity to enable the manufacturing sector in so many different ways. Um, yeah, I w I'm struck by a bunch of things. I mean, first of all, one of the reasons I have engaged with Tulip is that I think that I see that it is actually a lot more than just a product. Because if it was just a product, you know, products, like you said earlier, had they have features and they can be enticing on their own or not. And you can, you know, you can make a living that way. But ever, every so often, there's a company uh, or or an organization that comes along that has a transformative potential. And I think that's something, uh, you know, what you're uh, saying, it just reminds me that I think there is that potential in, in Tulip. And it, even if you just look at the manufacturing sector like you have done, and you think about, you know, how much money has really been invested in traditional office workers and you think about the amount of true innovative technology that has been given to people who are not fortunate enough i guess to sit you know at a desk and and sort of drum on their keyboard right so of course right. you could say well there's the mobile revolution yes so there's a cell phone but there's been no connection between the cell phone and the work that these uh manufacturing workers have been carrying out Yet, it's such a big part of our economy. It's almost an absurdity. I agree. And I think people have said this, you know, you know we asked for, uh, you know, going to, the, to Mars and we got, uh, you know, social media, essentially. But there's something here, I think. There's a, there's a moment for manufacturing. What, what, do you think, uh, what do you think the movement part is there? Well, I mean, one aspect we are exploring on the podcast is this idea of, Augmenting workers, not just yep. automating them away, right? So that is yeah. sort of the fundamental. Correct. If there's a movement or an idea, core idea of this podcast, this is sort of what we're trying to to explore. Um, how do you how do you think that fits in for you? This this idea of uh, of augmentation Great. is that something that that is positive for for you? Because yes. you know, automation is very positive for many people, uh, yeah. uh, unless you're being automated. You know, it's, I mean, the right. efficiency argument, you can't argue with robotics and a lot of wonderful technologies that are automating. Right. Um, RPA but, uh, solutions, et cetera. Sure. But augmentation, I mean, I'm a big believer. I've never seen humans taken out of the loop entirely. I have seen humans not have tedious work that they have to do. You know, I think back to a summer job I had in high school in downtown Boston filing medical claims in alphanumeric order that job no longer exists thank goodness <laughs> because one would not last in that job for 35 years so so what i think about the movement in manufacturing i know there are a couple of heroes and heroines in every shop floor that go home at night and dream about a better way there has to be a better way what if we could instrument this what if we could plug this in what if we could get signal on that? And those are the people who I think are going to embrace Tulip and create a mission for that particular manufacturing location to do the job a little bit more differently. It could be more productively. It could be with better quality. I think these are wonderful outcomes that happen, but with more passion, right? Because they've been unlocked from, if you look at a lot of early automation, it's pretty dreary, right? It's a very dictated system of work that doesn't allow you to bring creativity in and what tulip has done is said hey humans heroes heroines if you want to be creative and you want to redefine the work we'll give you the platform to do that 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's something there, and it's also something about who gets to decide and who has the visibility of 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 the analytics and data around it too, right? Because similar, yes. I guess, to what Salesforce was doing, when you put on on the table a, a solution that's so simple that you don't have to be a programmer to not just use it, but but even build the apps. That that you then are implementing that does make a difference because now suddenly you, you you're not taking this massive night course or you know have to go back to school you're you're actually using doing it modern technology naturally yeah, yeah. So there's something there yeah. too and you know I'll I'll make a comment after 35 years of leadership on how change happens organically. Mm -hmm. Leaders often define a what, right? A company has a mission and then a leader comes in and says, we're going to do X, we're going to globalize, we're going to release this offering. The, the best ideas for the how we do that come from the front lines. Mm -hmm. And that's what these modern platforms have unleashed is the ideas at the front lines on how it would be better. They can actually create the work design the work, extend the platform to support the what. And to me, that's the that's the progress that we've seen over the last 20 years, really with these no-code platforms that, in, that are very flexible and agile, that uh, the front lines have been able to design better house. Um, I don't think leaders design great house from their offices or their Zoom screens. <laughs> But uh, that, that's interesting. There is something, though, that, that I, it seems that you have this kind of w w whatever it is, this instinct for when scale is appropriate and when it can happen. And if you apply kind of your futurist hat, I don't know if you have a futurist hat, but uh, you, the one that you use when you kind of pick, pick uh, companies to engage with, how long do you think this transition is going to take in manufacturing from... The fact that, you know, well, if you look at Salesforce, right, it's been around for some years. How long is, is it until the, trend, the full transition will happen where manufacturers around the globe will very naturally have simplified, whatever that now means, they have simplified yeah. their business and gained in efficiency doing it, not lost in efficiency, because that's what we're talking about, right? A massive gain in efficiency and a massive simplification at the same time. I think a decade, uh, faster than Salesforce because a lot, and faster than other companies because a lot of the foundation has been built and there are mm -hmm. analogs that exist that we can point to. But I think in a decade, if we had this conversation, mm. uh, you know, Tulip would be the heart mm. of the system of record and there'd be a lot of people pumping blood in the form of data into Tulip. And there'd be a lot of robotics apparatus sitting on the shop floor giving signal to Tulip and supply chain information integrated in. But I would say a decade. I think it will go relatively fast. Can you give me a clear idea of what will happen around this development? Because you have seen it with Salesforce. So if you, if you go, if you dial... 15 years back or whatever back in time and then you sort of dial up Salesforce what would you say the effects have been on the market of, 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 of that from before to after and, and, and how do you extrapolate that to kind of let's call it a tulip uh, decade what, what would actually happen to the market what new things will be possible then because you know what we're talking about isn't just making one company big we're talking yeah. about the adjacencies the possibilities the change yeah well i think today in part because of salesforce companies know that they win or lose based on their brand around customer experience right how they serve the customer is as important as what they serve the customer. And I give Salesforce a lot of credit for making that customer experience, call it instrumentation, very accessible, right? And measurable and something that you care about. And I hear it all the time in the culture where people talk about a bad experience or we have to invest in customer success, which is, that's code for we care about our customers being successful. And that 
by the way, that no one cared 20 years ago. They, they cared, but they paid lip service to caring, I would argue. I think in manufacturing, it'll be more around transparency of, um, you know, there are two trends that I think are really interesting. One is I want to co-create product like my Nike sneakers. <laughs> um, the other is I want personalized product like my aligners. <laughs> and those are manufactured products or my eyeglasses or you name it. Uh, um, and that's one trend uh, that I think will be really interesting. And that's where adaptive manufacturing techniques are uh, really changing the world. And I think that will go relatively fast and we'll look for more and more use cases in that case. Uh, I think the other piece is in traditional discrete manufacturing where one can't use adaptive techniques at scale, there'll be more transparency around what does the customer, and maybe it's a buyer, in this case, a B2B buyer, what does the customer want? Where is the signal coming from? Oh, by the way, how is that product produced from an ESG perspective? What's the pricing? Because pricing intelligence is is maturing rather dramatically. What's the location and availability? And so to me, it's much more of that, we used to call it the 360 view of the customer. I would say it's the 360 view of the good <laughs> that will be in the future. That's fascinating. So it's a co-design process not just by the customers and the company, but it's by the customers and the workers of the company. It's like yes. it's a full 360 co-design where, where, where you're not just sort of saying, you know, you have a vote in this. You're truly engaging both parties in, 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 the, in the product. That's a fascinating. Yeah, it's a fascinating prospect. Well, Hillary, okay. this has been uh, this has been really really pleasurable. Do you have a final message uh, that you want to share uh, from from your experience in scaling scaling companies? Uh, <laughs> what would the final message be? If there's always a better way. I think right, where so we're we back started to your father. this conversation, there's always a better way, and um, I mean, I think I think that better way comes from thinking market back and having real context for what somebody or a organization is trying to do and then applying disruption to that. But grounding oneself in context and where we are, I do believe if not for the pandemic, we would not see this acceleration that I'm predicting in manufacturing. I mean, a decade's not a very long time to bring about the type of change that we're talking about. But I do think the pandemic has helped us think more strategically. That's a wonderful message to end on, given you know all of the complications around the pandemic. I'm glad that some very, very positive things can also be attributed to something as devastating and certainly disruptive for, for, for many of us that, uh, that we are experiencing. Well, well, Hillary, I, I wish you best of luck in uh, picking the next winners, and I hope you stick with, uh, with the winners you, that your predictions here can really liberate uh, you know, workers, first of all. But, uh, but I guess every uh, so often, right, the entire market needs to, to evolve or, or has a, po uh, a possibility to evolve. And there seems to now be be that opportunity and it's uh, like you pointed out it's not just created by the technology it's it's a complicated context thank you tron thank you for inviting me to this wonderful conversation thank you so much you have just listened to episode 41 of the augmented podcast with host trun arne unheim the topic was scaling software movements our guest was hillary coppola mcadams venture partner at nea in this conversation, we talked about what Hillary has learned from 35 years in the software industry, channeling social movements within technology. My takeaway is that at hyperscale, growing software companies is not just about sales numbers and strategies. It is about channeling social movements. Perhaps it takes an outsider to see it and run with it. Hillary has, through 35 years of trailblazing product and sales leadership, shown that truly understanding features, markets, users, and governance is not just about following Silicon Valley personality cults. Rather, 
Mega scale follows from tapping into big movements in the market, movements that are social in nature, delivering value to people who become believers and tell their friends, colleagues, and family about it. But although sales at the core may be social, it is also about being disciplined about market entry decisions and following through with a total solution. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 18, Transforming Foundational Industries, episode 42, Business Beyond Buzzwords, or episode 23, Digital Manufacturing in the Cloud. Here's a clip from my honest chat with Jeff Immelts in episode 42, Business Beyond Buzzwords. Yeah, so, um, look, my dad worked for GE. I worked for GE for 35 years. I, I love the company, and I love the people I work with, and I did my best every day. Yet with all that, there are some people that blame me for a lot of things associated with the company. And so that's heartbreaking, right? That's, that's, that's heartbreaking. But I'm not the only person that's gone through stuff like that. And the decision you have to make is, are you just gonna keep, are you gonna quit and just go into hiding? Or are you gonna keep on trying, right? And so I kept trying. I kept trying to add value. I kept trying to help people like Max and Natan. Uh, and, and I think that's the message. The message is sometimes Despite best intentions, intentions, things don't work the way you want them to. But you just can't quit. You, 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 you can't quit. You got to keep trying and, and find new avenues to add value. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. If so, do let us know by messaging us. And we would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, connected frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. See you next time. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter.